welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. So glad that you're here. But let's pray before we get started. Father, we thank you so much for your word that you have not left us in the dark, that you've given us this bright, shining light that lights our way to you that lights our path and shows us how to live, that, that lights it, our path to show us what your love is like and that we can find joy in the love that you have. We just thank you so much, Lord, as we think about what your Son has done. We are so thankful that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for your glory alone. And we're just so thankful for that gift of salvation, that gift of a kingdom. And we pray, Lord, as we uh, look into your word this morning, that you would just show us, Lord, the glory of it all. We pray for anyone that's not yet received the gift of your Savior King. We pray that they would do so this morning, that they would receive him as the best gift that they'd ever heard of and the best gift that they ever needed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been in this Advent series, and we've been looking at what Jesus was born to do. And we were looking at how Jesus was born to be prophet. He was born to show us the way to God, to give us ultimate truth, and that he's a gift to skeptics. Then the second time we looked at that he's priest, that he came to purify us and make a way to God, so he's a gift to sinners. This morning we're going to look at how Jesus was born to be king, to set the world right, and that Jesus is a gift to cynics. In the Old Testament, guys, the king's job was to reign in such a way that God's will would be done on earth. The king was to set the world right. And the classic example of a king in the Old Testament was who? David, right? The best king in the Old Testament. And, um, and David was told, um, this has happened about a thousand years before Jesus was born. David was told that one day, God told him that one day he would send a king born of David's line that would reign over the entire world forever. It's called the Davidic Covenant. And the first 39 chapters of Isaiah really unpack this hope of this global king that will reign in the line of David. And uh, Jesus is a gift to cynics. And I'm using cynic in the sense of kind of pessimistic. Jesus is a gift to those who find it hard to trust, hard to hope, hard to believe that there's a future that will be bright. And the reason he's a gift to people like that is that Jesus was born to set the world right. To, to reign here on earth and make all things new. And that's one of the things that Christmas is about. Our text this morning, Isaiah 9, you guys are very familiar with it. You could probably even mouth along with it if, you're, if you've gone through um, church many years in a row in Christmas time. This particular passage is one of the most famous Old Testament Christmas passages. It was written 700 years before Jesus was born. It was a really dark time. It was a time of national distress. It was a time when it was hard to hope. It was a time when it was hard to trust that things could be better. It was a time when cynicism ran deep. And, and that time, 700 years before Jesus came, was a time when God was judging his people, punishing his people for their idolatry. And so he'd sent the Assyrians. And the Assyrians were coming in and they were conquering the northern kingdom and hauling people away to captivity. And I just want you to think about that for a second. What would it be like if right now you're trying to celebrate you know, Christmas and things like that and we know that like in San Bernardino... People are being hauled away by a foreign power. 
I mean, it's that kind of a thing. Uh, and and you, you know that you're next, right? You know that your people have just been just as idolatrous and that you know, he's going to come down this way. Imagine how dark that was. Look at the end of Isaiah 8, because that sets the context for 9. He says in verse 22, They will pass through the land greatly distressed. These are the people of God. Greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. They will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness and gloom and anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the context. That's the context for this promise in Isaiah 9. And, and you see the great reversal. What does Isaiah 9 start with? What word? But. but. Isn't that a great word? You know, when you hear that kind of darkness, there's a great but here, it says, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shown. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. So there's this moment when all the darkness, God's promising, will be wiped away, and the world, the place that they live in, will be flooded with joy. And you see all these words for joy. Light, joy, rejoicing, glad, right? Glorious, great light, no gloom. And you can see that this joy is multifaceted. It's like the joy of harvest. Look at verse 3. It says, they rejoice before you as the joy of harvest. We have a hard time relating to this, actually, this whole idea of the joy of harvest. But if you're an ancient farmer, there's like dozens of ways to starve to death, okay? There's like only one way to succeed and dozens of ways to die, okay? You got locusts, you got rain at the wrong time, no rain, uh, wind come through. I mean, there's tons of ways to starve to death. And so there's this, he compares the joy that God's going to bring to that of the, the harvest is in. We're going to be fine. We're going to live another year, right? It's harvest joy. It's also, he says, it's like V-Day joy. Look at verse 3. They rejoice before you, and they are glad as when they divide the spoil. This is also hard for us to imagine because we've lived in a time of such great security. But imagine, imagine the joy of V-Day, May 8th, 1945, in England or France. Imagine the joy of that. The joy of like realizing we will not live the rest of our lives in a Nazi dystopia. I mean, that was about to happen, right? It was already happening in France. It was going to happen in England. You imagine the joy, the V-Day joy. He's saying when God sends his king, it's going to be that kind of joy in the land. Suddenly, in a moment, all fear, all darkness gone. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampled warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Isn't that awesome? So all war's over, all suffering's over, and you can just chuck all the implements of war into the fire. You know, those boots you wore in battle, those clothes covered in blood, you just burn it all. We're not going to need that anymore. Kind of reminds me of earlier in Isaiah when it talks about the, the beating their plows, uh, their, their, uh, their swords into plows. They're, they're turning their, their war implements into useful things for their home. Imagine the confidence you'd have to have to do that, right? All burdens, all oppression, all war is gone. Look at verse 4. He says, it'll be as on the day of Midian. You guys remember what Midian was about? It's Judges uh, chapter uh, 6 and 7. 
Midian and Gideon. You remember the story? Really cool story. There's another time that Israel was under God's judgment. It was a huge surprise. And this was even earlier. This is about 12th century B.C. Um, God's people were idolatrous. God was punishing them at that time with the Midianites. And it was so bad in the land in the time of Gideon that a lot of the Israelites were living in like fortified fortresses or in caves. They were hiding out in the hills. And when they plant their field, they get everything all planted. And they plant their field, and they're about to harvest, and then the Midianites would come in, and just like it says, it would devour their crops like locusts. It was a time of great depression. It was a time of great sadness. And so the people called out to the Lord, as they always did. They called to the Lord, and the Lord sent a deliverer. But the deliverer was interesting. You guys remember what Gideon did for a living? Gideon was a farmer. Gideon was a farmer, and he wasn't like a real, you know, kind of glorious, uh, courageous type farmer. When the angel of the Lord found him, he was threshing wheat in, a, in an, a, um, a wine press, which was usually a sunken location. So here he is kind of like down in a little hole, beating out his wheat, and the angel of the Lord comes to him and he says, you are going to lead my troops to get rid of all these Midianites. And he goes through a whole process, and God shows him he's really serious about this. And then, you know, Gideon's got his warriors, and he's got like 32,000 troops. And he's like, okay, let's do this. You know, he's finally got the courage to do it. And the Lord's like, it's too many. It's too many. I don't like these odds. They're too good for you. And so he says, you know, hey, tell the troops, if anyone's scared, they can go home. So right down to 10,000. And Gideon's like, bummer, you know. And, and the Lord still doesn't like the odds that Gideon has. They're too good. Gideon wants to tie both of his hands behind his back. And so he has, it says, go down and have them drink. And they go down and drink. And he goes, anyone that doesn't cup the water with their hands, like all those people are gone. He's left with 300. So here's this farmer, no experience, with 300 troops. And he's going to go against the Midianites, which are described over and over again as a, like a swarm of locusts with innumerable camels. It was the camels that were the real scare. Tons of camels, more camels than you can number. And they were a swarm of people, right? And so Gideon's getting ready to do this battle, and at night he goes and he kind of creeps up to the Midianite camp, and he's kind of listening to the talk of the guards. And one of the guards says to another, you know, I had this dream, I had this dream that there was a, like a barley cake, and it rolled down the hill, and it flattened our tent. And the other guy goes, well, this can only mean one thing, that Gideon's going to destroy us. And so that fear starts to spread all through the camp, and Gideon has this idea of, I know what we'll do, there's only 300 of us, but what we'll do is we'll all get trumpets, at night, we'll scare these people. We'll have trumpets. We'll have these clay jars. We'll put a torch in them. On my command, everybody blow your trumpet. Everybody smash your clay jar to make a bunch of noise. And then all these lights will pop up. And they'll think there's tons of us. Right? And so they did that. They blew the trumpet. They cracked their clay pots. The torches all lit up. And the Midianites, already super afraid because of that dream, are terrified. And they start fighting each other. They end up stabbing each other and, and stuff like that. And so by the time they run them off, I mean, a lot of the Midianites had killed other Midianites at that point. And so God delivered, guys. Suddenly, in a moment in the land, all fear and all darkness was gone. They had the joy of harvest and victory that filled the land. And Isaiah is promising here that something like that is going to happen on a global scale in our world. That God will suddenly wipe away all darkness and flood the world with happiness in a way only he can. That's what he means by on the day of Midian. Isn't that cool? There's a cool story behind that, right? How is God going to set things right? How is he going to defeat all our enemies? How is God going to remove all suffering and fear and sadness and oppression and wars? How is he going to usher in an age of never-ending global happiness? That's what's being promised here. How is he going to do that? You think, well, is he going to do it through technology? Maybe he's going to like raise up like an Elon Musk 
right? To just solve all our problems with technology, and then we're going to have that great age of happiness. A lot of us are like that. It's like, Elon, save us, you know, um, with your electric things. Um, or, or is it going to be a great political leader? You know, we're going to have this great candidate that's coming along, and this is going to be the right person. This is going to usher in this age of global happiness. Or is it going to be through education? That's a classic one. You know, we just need to be educated enough. You know, if we just got the right amount of education, you know, we're going we're gonna to be fine. The world's going to be great. It's going to be this great utopia. Or is it going to be, you know, we just, need, we just need a great, thriving economy. If we just had a great, thriving economy, that takes care of everything, we'll be fine. Right? No, God doesn't use any of those things. We've actually tried all those things, by the way. Like, if you think technology is going to save you, we actually have it. And I don't know. Are we better? I don't think we're better. I mean, I like vaccines. I like medicine. I like a lot of, I like air conditioning. But there's a point at which technology doesn't take you a whole lot further, right? We've tried politics. It seems to get worse. We've tried education. Some of the most educated people can be the most corrupt, right? Um, We've had great, we've had lots of money. Has it made us happy? You think about our country and the amount of sadness and addiction and, and death and just despair there is in such a prosperous nation. We tried all that, right? You think, well, maybe God will send like an invasion of angels, 32,000 of them. We'd take 300, right? 300 would be good. No, he's not going to do that. How is God going to set the world right? Well, like on the day of Midian, the answer is surprising, right? So verse 5 talks about this great victory over darkness, and then verse 6 says this. This is his solution, to solve all the world's problems. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born. It's a surprising answer. You guys are used to this passage, but that's a very shocking answer. I mean, we're talking about real-life problems, death, darkness, oppression, wars, sickness, anguish, gloom, contempt, and it's like, Lord, what's your plan for this world, right? And the Lord's like, we're going to go with the baby invasion plan. (laughs) And you're like, babies? He's like, no, 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 one baby. You're like, what? It seems like such a strange answer, right? But it's not a strange answer when you see who this baby is. Take a look. He is born to be the world's king. Verse 6, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Guys, this turns out to be exactly what we need. And this is so much better solution than any of the things we could have thought of. Look at this king. This king is the wonderful counselor. That word wonder is often used of things that only God can do, like signs and wonders, right? Well, the sign and the wonder with Jesus is his amazing wisdom. Because, guys, some rulers lack wisdom to rule well, but Jesus is the all-wise king. Have you ever heard of anyone wiser than Jesus I mean, read the Gospels. Have you ever heard of anybody as wise as Jesus? At 12 years old, he's in the temple with the teachers of the law, and they're blown away by him. At 12, right? His wisdom is incredible. How would you like, forget having just the right president, the right governor, or whatever. Imagine a king of this world, and he's Jesus. That's the wise king we need, right? Or this king is also mighty God. Says he's mighty God. This baby that Mary carried for nine months and raised in her humble humble home is and was and is God Himself, Mary's own Creator. God the Son added humanity to His deity. He became one person, two natures, both God and man. And this word "mighty" is really cool because this Hebrew word "mighty" it often is translated "hero." Jesus is our hero, God. 
Isn't that an interesting thing to call him? You know that only in Jesus do we have a God who's truly heroic? All the other gods you could think of that human beings have created, none of them are heroic like Jesus. Only in Jesus do we have a God who's heroic, who actually faced danger with courage, who felt suffering and death to rescue us. In Jesus, we have God himself dropping behind enemy lines as a baby to rescue us through his own death. He's a hero God. He's the heroic God, right? Talk about dangerous. Drop behind enemy lines as a baby. A lot of that early narrative in, in Luke shows the great danger he put himself in. He's our hero God. Sounds like the day of Midian, right? I'm going to send a baby. That's the way I'm going to do it. I'm going to enter as a baby. This king, guys, is mighty God. Some rulers, they might have good intentions. They might have good ideas, but they have no power to carry out. But Jesus is the king with sovereign power and freedom to do all of his holy will. Imagine what it's going to be like when he reigns on earth and takes full control of this place as an earthly king. He's a king who is an everlasting father. Some of you guys read this, especially people that think theologically, and go, "Uh uh-oh, what's this? You know, is this Trinity confusion? This isn't Trinity confusion. He's not saying here that Jesus is God the Father. Father here speaks of Jesus' care. Jesus has fatherly care for his people. And we need this in a ruler of the world, don't we? Some rulers use their power just to serve themselves, but Jesus is the king who uses his power for his people to care for us as a father cares for his kids. And he's an everlasting father because his care will never end. Isn't that awesome? This is good stuff. Imagine what this will be like, guys. Imagine what it will be like when the world is ruled by one who has all power, all wisdom, and he rules to bless us as his kids. And he's a king who's a prince of peace. Remember the context of this? It's all about wars. And, and he's here to be the prince of peace. You guys know what that Hebrew word is for peace, right? It's shalom, right? And it doesn't just mean no wars, does it? Shalom is more than just no wars and strife. Shalom is a kind of peace that's well-being. It's wholeness. It's prosperity. It's human flourishing. What this points to is that God has a plan for a real physical, tangible future that all of his people will have in a resurrected world and resurrected bodies. You know, I think a lot of times we water down our view of heaven and think about this ethereal thing or it's like an escape from this place. God is going to make the place new. Take a look at Isaiah 65. Same book. So we're going to talk about what does it look like when that king is reigning on earth. And it sounds like this. Isaiah 65, 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I have created. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall there be heard in it the sound of weeping or crying of distress. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. 
you imagine such a thing? you imagine such a thing? Such a future? Uh, this is a reigning of Christ physically on earth, making all things new, making all sin and suffering and sickness and sorrow cease. Isn't that amazing to think about? Think about this. There's also this picture here. Is he's going to give us meaningful labor. Because I think some people think, like, what are we going to do? He said, there's, a, there's a cultivating of this place. He talks about building and planting and exploring and subduing the world, all to the glory and pleasure of God. Guys, King Jesus is going to make every human inhabitant of that place as happy as we possibly can be because we're going to be with him. We're going to see him. We're going to enjoy him. It's going to be amazing. And that kingdom, guys, we don't have to worry like the Israelites, like every time something went well, idolatry, more judgment. It's like over and over again, this whole cycle. That's not going to happen when he reigns over us because it says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Don't you love that? Don't you guys love that increase of his government? Some of you guys are very against increased government and I get that. We're talking about the government of Jesus. An ever-increasing kingdom that knows no end. Isn't that amazing? Don't you love that? That's what's coming at Christ's return. And that's why Jesus is a gift to cynics, guys. Those who find it hard to trust, hard to hope that there's a bright future. Only Jesus, guys, gives a real hope for our real world and solid reasons to believe it. Because Christmas means we can suffer with joy. I'm not talking about the secular type, Christless Christmas. That one will actually increase your pain. There's a lot of talk this time of year, it being a hard time of year, and it is a hard time of year for people that have experienced losses. But that secular, Christless type Christmas will do nothing for your pain. But the Christmas I'm talking about, the real Christmas, the birth of a king who's going to remove all suffering and usher in a never-ending age of global happiness, that helps. The more we meditate on that, that helps. We have a real future, a physical world of happiness to look forward to, and that gives us joy and suffering. And we know something about this. It's like the joy, the way an employee can suffer through work looking forward to vacation joy or retirement joy, right? It's like the way a student can suffer through finals looking forward to Christmas break joy, right? Or like a soldier suffers in the trenches knowing that his deployment is almost over. He's got going home joy right? This can keep us going. Jesus talked about our sufferings in this life as birth pains for the new world being delivered to us, right? As we suffer through this life, we're, we're experiencing the birth pains of the new creation, that at some point out pops the new creation. Like, is it a boy? Is it a girl? It's a world, okay, that's been birthed through our sufferings, that Christ will come and make all things new. Guys, we have a world coming to look forward to with joyful anticipation. And that's why Jesus is a gift to cynics. He is the only real hope for the physical world. And I want you guys to grasp this because, guys, you realize that no other worldview even promises a hope for this physical world, right? You think of, like, if you're one that doesn't believe in God and kind of believes in materialism and that material things are all there is, you know, materialism has no hope for this world, like, their eschatology, their future, is a heat death of the universe. That the whole thing just kind of winds down, cools down, and becomes lifeless. Like, that's the future if you're a materialist. Heat death. It all just gets colder and lifeless. 
Some religions offer some sort of a retreat to a non-physical future. Like, oh yeah, this is a disaster. Don't worry, we're beaming out of here, right? That, some religions offer that. The gospel, guys, promises not a retreat from this world, but an invasion of this world, right? Only Christianity takes suffering so seriously and deals with it so thoroughly. I think sometimes as Christians we think, you know, people talk about the problem of evil and how difficult it is, and it is a difficult problem, guys. But Christianity has the best possible resources because it says that suffering is not the final word, and God himself came and was crucified to remove all suffering. The best possible answer for the problem of suffering. Let me ask you this. Do you believe that joy is the final word of this universe? Do you believe that, right? Do you believe that joy is the final word? The only way you can believe that is if you put your hope in Jesus. Otherwise, you got like heat, death, the universe, or some other thing to look forward to. Only if you believe in Jesus, guys, can you believe that joy is the final word in the universe. And and, and we can have joy in our suffering because of this. We can have joy right now even in our suffering because we know how the story ends. It's a story. We know how it ends. It ends in resurrection and recreation. That's what we see in, in chapter 65 of Isaiah. That's what we see in, in Revelation 21 and 22. And, and so you might want to ask yourself, well, how can I be certain? How can I be certain that this king will come? How can I, how can I know for sure that this king is going to reign here? And I would just say, we know because the invasion already started, right? The king has already come for his first coming, right? The invasion of new creation has already started, and we can see that. You know, if you guys read the Gospels, have you ever noticed how much kingdom language there is? Tons of kingdom language. If you notice how all the Christmas songs talk about the kingdom and the king, guys, Christmas is about his kingdom come. Think about this. Jesus descended from the king of David. He's called the son of David. That's kingdom language. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the city of the king. Jesus was received as king by the Magi and given kingly gifts. Jesus was hated and hunted by Herod because he was seen as a rival king, which he was. Herod was not wrong. Jesus is a rival king to Herod. Jesus was confessed as king by Peter when he called him the Christ. He's talking about him as savior king. Jesus entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on a donkey to show that he was the coming king. He was tried as a king, right? Remember Pilate saying, are you the king of the Jews? He said, you've said it, right? He was mocked as king. Remember the purple robe and the crown of thorns and the reed and the bowing down? That was all mocking him as king, right? You think about when Jesus died, he died on a cross with a sign above it that said he was king, king of the Jews, right? And then he, and by the way, guys, the cross was actually Jesus's way of defeating the powers of this world. You guys realize that? By the cross, that's the way Jesus did defeat sin and Satan and death. They thought they had him. But Jesus' death was their defeat. Just like the Midianites. Remember the Midianites? They were tricked into stabbing each other. On the cross, guys, Jesus defeated evil by its own ways. At the cross, evil, the evil enemy, Satan, slit his own throat at the cross. On the cross, Jesus was not a victim. He was a victorious king. Right? Evil stabbing itself as it stabbed him. Jesus was raised to prove that he's the world's king. Jesus sent us out as his ambassadors. And you know who sends ambassadors? Kings. Right? He said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus ascended to show he was king. Jesus reigns right now in heaven as king, fulfilling the Davidic covenant. There is a human being with David's DNA 
reigning as king right now in heaven, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Jesus will return to the earth to reign as king. You know, in Revelation, when you see him come back, what does it say on him? He's got like this cool thigh tattoo that says like king of kings down it. It says it on his robes too. King of kings, Lord of lords. He's king. Revelation 22, last chapter of the Bible, you see Jesus reigning as king in the center of the new Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? And you might ask yourself, well, why didn't he do that last bit already? I think that's a valid question. People say like, well, why didn't Jesus at his first coming banish all evil and suffering? Just do it all at once. Why this whole two-stage thing? Why the delay in the middle? Right? And I think if he's going to come and he's going to remove all evil, why don't you just do it? Well, there's a lot of answers you could point to. But one of the most personal would be that if you guys realize if Jesus just came and banished all evil from the earth at his first coming, none of us would be allowed to stay. Right? If Jesus came at his first coming to banish all evil from here and set up his kingdom fully, none of us would be allowed to stay. Right? Because we are sinners. We deserve to be banished. We're the source of a lot of this evil. Right? And so Jesus came the first time to make us worthy to enter his kingdom when it comes. And that's what you see in Isaiah 53. We talked about it last week. But that the king came the first time to die on the cross so that we could enter his kingdom. On the cross, Jesus the king endured the banishment for our sin so that we could be welcomed to live in his kingdom forever. And so right now, and this is the, this is the good news, is that right now Jesus is offering amnesty to all sinners. He's offering amnesty to all of his enemies that if they will trust in him as Savior King, they can enter his kingdom and be welcomed in. And that's the good news that's been put forward to you today, is that the king who will bring his kingdom fully has died in your place to pay the penalty of your debt. When Jesus came over and over again, he said what? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And the kingdom is coming here. And we need to be ready to receive him. And that's why Jesus had two comings. Peter said it this way, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Receive Jesus as your Savior King today. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, it's not just about future though, right? Because Jesus is King now. And part of the good news, guys, is that you can have Jesus as your King now. You guys realize that? You could have Jesus as your king now. Um, you could receive him to reign in your life now. And you need this, okay? You need this. It's not to pick on you. But you're not very good at being your own king. And neither am I. One thing all Christians have in common is they got to a place where they realize that they're terrible at being their own king. Have you gotten to that place yet? You gotten to that place where you're like, I'm not good at life. I'm not good at being king of my own life. I'm not good at, at living the way that I know I should, right? Everybody's come to that place, amen? Have you come to the place where you're, you've just realized you're terrible at being your own king? Right? We need Jesus the king to live in our lives now. And think about what kind of king you'd be inviting into your life to reign in your life now. He's wonderful counselor. Do you need his wisdom now? Think about your life. Do you need Jesus' wisdom in your life now? He is mighty God. Do you need his power in your life now? He is everlasting father. Do you need his care now? Right? This is what's being offered to you. Not just a future kingdom, a kingdom now. The, the, he's the prince of peace. Would it be nice to have Jesus' shalom now? 
at least some of it. I mean, we live in a very embattled life to come until he returns. But how would you like to have his shalom? You guys know what happened? You guys know what happened to ancient people when they didn't have a good, strong king? Yes, they died. Yes. So they got beat up over and over and over again. Remember the Israelites and the Midianites? Right? They got beat up and enslaved by all the evil powers around them. Right? It's the same with you. If you don't have Jesus as king, Midianites are going to come in and raid you constantly. And you know that's true. You know that if you don't have him as king, something or someone will be your king, and they will not treat you like Jesus does. The Nobel Prize laureate Bob Dylan, true story, (laughs) Nobel Prize in literature, not for this song, but he's saying this, you may be an ambassador to England or France, you may like to gamble, you may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champ of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve someone. That's true of every single human being. You can either have Jesus as king or something or someone else is going to be king over your life and they are not going to treat you like Jesus does. Right? Everything else is like this passage talks about oppression, servitude, right? Yoke, burden, except for Jesus. How would you like King Jesus to reign right now over your marriage? Would that be good news? How would you like King Jesus to reign over your parenting or your work life? How would you like Jesus to reign over your speech? Have you come to see that like your speech isn't really that helpful to people? Right? Not that helpful. That's a nice way of saying it. Would you like King Jesus to reign over your crazy thoughts? Yes, please. Would you like King Jesus to reign over your emotions? I would love that. I need some shalom. (laughs) Guys, would you like King Jesus to reign over your habits or your desires or your loves? Guys, Jesus' reign as king is good news. It's a total gift. Let's be honest. You guys are terrible at being your own king. You need Jesus. We all do, right? That's who we need this morning. And maybe you're not a Christian and you hear that as good news and you receive him today. You trust in him today. You ask him to forgive you and reign over you today. And maybe you're a believer and you just forgot. You forgot that Jesus' kingdom coming is so good and you kind of got, you know, kind of drawn up in all the things of this life and you don't realize, like, you have this amazing thing coming and maybe you just forgot that joy. Or maybe you forgot that Jesus' reign in your life right now is good news. This is a good time for us to be reminded of that, isn't it? That actually, Jesus, I do want you to reign. And there's these areas of your life which you cordon off to him. You're like, hey, you can have this part, but not that part. And maybe today, if you're sane and you're getting this, you're saying, you know what? I want him to reign over my whole life. And you know what's amazing? Look at verse 7. This could apply to you. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Guys, that's what discipleship's about. Discipleship is about more and more of your life coming under the rule of King Jesus living more and more in his kingdom now, right? That's what we want. Yield to him. Think about the year to come and just think about how could I have King Jesus reign more in my life? How could I live more in the kingdom this year? Um, Yesterday was the the winter solstice, right? It was the shortest day of the year, right? Most darkness. And from here on out, the days get brighter, right? And that's what the reign of King Jesus is like, right? Ever brighter. If Jesus is your savior king, He wants me to right now invite you to the Lord's Supper. Um, He would want me to invite you to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper 
is a foretaste of the kingdom banquet that we're going to enjoy in the world to come. People often complain, bread's so small, drink's so small. It's an appetizer, right? <laughs> we're not giving you the feast now. The feast is to come when Christ returns. Let me, can I read for you just real briefly what the feast sounds like? This is what it sounds like when Jesus returns and he puts forward this feast to us. In Isaiah 25, verse 6. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he, King Jesus, will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. King Jesus will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, this is what we're going to say on that day, behold, this is our God. We've waited for him, for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord we've waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in that salvation. And so as we take the Lord's Supper, it's a time to rejoice in our Savior King's victory on the cross for us. So, confession. I don't believe in a Christmas spirit. May we talk about the Christmas spirit? I believe in a Christmas body. Jesus' body. Right? I believe in something substantial. I believe in Jesus' body. The Christmas body. That by his blood and his body, that he defeated sin and evil and suffering and death for us. Because Christmas has teeth. It eats suffering for breakfast. Right? <laughs> As we take this bread and this cup, remember that this is a time also for him to strengthen you. You want to live in the kingdom now. And this is one of the ways he strengthens us. As we take this bread and this cup, guys, take it as a way of welcoming his return to set this world right. Maybe you toast to it, right? Christmas is about the kingdom come. Let's stand and worship our king. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.